Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Rebecca King, and this week, as a part of our series on people, places, and ideas to explore, we consider mathematics. Now, it may seem absurd to try and cover such a huge field in a 15-minute podcast, but math sometimes unfairly gets a bad rap in popular culture. Most of us can probably recall a scene whether from a sitcom or a movie, in which a teenager comes home from school and complains about their calculus or geometry class. At the same time, we all acknowledge that mathematics is incredibly important. It has allowed us to dream and achieve once impossible things, such as sending a rocket to the moon and back. So today we seek to demystify mathematics, for those who may have struggled with it in the past. I turned to John McCarthy, the Spencer T. Olin Professor of Mathematics at Washington University in St. Louis, to examine what math is at the most fundamental level. So let's start with what science is. One definition of science is it's a prediction of a repeatable event. So for example, a chemist might say, if you mix hydrogen and oxygen together and add some heat, then you'll get a bang and then you'll get water. You may not believe that, but if you don't believe it, you can go and you can mix hydrogen and oxygen and see what happens. And if this happens every time, people start to believe it and say, oh, that's what happens. So mathematics, in a similar vein, you can think of as repeatable mental experiments. So if I make a claim that if you do this and this, you'll get a certain outcome, except this is something you do mentally. For example, if you add 3 and 5, you'll get 8. The truth of that is whether every time you think about 3 plus 5 and you add them together, you say, oh, I always get 8. So it seems that this is a fact. The difficulty with mathematics is most of what you're talking about, you can't see directly. So I might be able to see 3 plus 5 directly in my head. But if I say, if you add 365 and 583 together, you get 948, I can't actually picture in my mind 365 objects and 543 objects and then just count them. Instead, I need some procedure to do it. And so we all learn arithmetic in elementary school to do things like this. And that's based on various principles of adding ones and adding tens and adding hundreds. And once you understand the principles, you sort of believe the general procedure. So mathematics is the study of repeatable mental experiments, and essentially, patterns. But mathematicians often divide themselves between pure mathematics and applied mathematics. What's the difference? Well, let's consider pure mathematics first. Pure mathematics studies abstract concepts that don't necessarily have any obvious application in the real world. Mathematics is generally pursued for aesthetic reasons. We think that these structures are beautiful and worth exploring. The object of pure mathematics is to take non-obvious conclusions and show that they're nonetheless true. A demonstration of Pythagoras' theorem 
So most people see such a proof in geometry in high school. It takes several steps to prove that it's true. It's not obviously true. It's not something you can just see in your head and say, ah, yes, I see why that's true. Instead, you have to say A implies B and B implies C, and you take a series of steps and you finally get to the conclusion. To reach these conclusions, mathematicians like Professor McCarthy use proofs to work through the problem, showing step-by-step step how to get from the question to the solution. Often, they can work weeks, months, sometimes even years trying to solve one proof. Naively, I asked Professor McCarthy if he could walk us through one of these problems. But you can imagine that if it takes months to solve, the answers, or proofs themselves, are quite lengthy. Well, so a proof is typically 20-30 pages, so uh, I can't really give it to you verbally. A good mathematical proof not only tells you that something is true, but it tells you why it's true. When you understand why it's true, you have a much deeper appreciation for it. During our interview, Professor McCarthy pointed out a shelf in his office that was crowded with notebooks full of proofs. He fills a notebook every few months, he told us, but that doesn't mean that he solves every proof he attempts. In fact, he told us that he makes lots of mistakes, but due to the nature of mathematics, those mistakes never last for very long. Mathematicians make lots of errors. If you never made errors, you'd never make any progress. If you tried to do everything and verify each step as you went along, you'd never get very far. But the errors don't last for very long because the nature of mathematics is you're trying to build these very tall, narrow towers. And so if any brick you put down isn't secure, then the whole tower comes tumbling down. So you very quickly discover an error because if you assume that what you did was true, then it has consequences. And you're always thinking about the consequences of what you proved. You'll quickly come to a contradiction if you've made a mistake. So remember how I said that pure mathematicians study problems that don't necessarily have any obvious real-world applications? Well, many of the proofs that were once solved simply for the joy of the mental experiment end up having important implications in modern science. Almost all major advances in physics depended on prior advances in mathematics. For instance, Einstein's theory of relativity couldn't have been worked out without earlier work in mathematics describing what it meant to have curved space. The principle of relativity is that gravity comes from curvature, and curvature needs to be worked out first. Various fields of mathematics which are developed purely for their aesthetic interest, turn out to be extremely important. Cell phone signals require encoding the signal and transmitting it, and you want to do this in a robust way that even with a little bit of loss of signal en route, you can still understand what the person was saying. So this turns out to be related to what were considered 50 years ago very abstract questions in algebra things in algebra that algebraists cared about just because they were interesting, and it turned out to be exactly the solution that was needed to optimize cell phone design. So I don't know if it's the way the human mind thinks or whether you just look around for tools already there, but mathematics has really been the driver of the entire scientific revolution. The scientific revolution really started with the development of calculus, which then enabled 
want to make quantitative predictions rather than just qualitative ones. And then everything has ballooned since then. We've heard a lot about pure mathematics, but how does applied mathematics work? Often, applied problems require mathematicians to team up with researchers in other fields in order to consider their problem from a mathematical angle. Well, for an applied problem, the hard part is figuring out what it is in mathematical terms. So somebody comes and they have a problem in chemistry or in physics, in biology, and they describe it in words. And if you don't know much about the field, you have to spend a lot of time interacting with them to make sure that you know the exact problem they're working on. For example, I have a friend, Hervoy Sikich, who's also a pure mathematician, but he got involved in somebody in the medical school who works in eyes. They're trying to come up with a model of the eye. So I was talking to the doctor in the medical school about this, who said he thought the process was very strange because Hervoy kept asking him all these basic questions and then writing out a list of assumptions and then saying, are these assumptions correct? He thought he was being a little overly cautious here and her boy explained that no the mathematics will be correct but you've got to make sure that it's on a firm foundation. Once you solve a mathematical problem you then need to translate this back into something that's useful. And this is normally an iterative process because the first time you do it you discover that you solved a problem but that's not quite what they were interested in and then you need to change it and, and repeat. And if you're lucky eventually you come up with an answer to something that was non-obvious. Mathematics is like another language in a lot of ways. It's another way of talking about and understanding our world. Professor McCarthy has a few applied mathematic collaborations of his own. I make a policy every time I meet anybody who's in some field of science at WashU, telling them that if they have anything involving numbers or patterns, I'm interested in thinking about it. And in particular, I have a longtime collaborator Michael Hughes, who works in the medical school. And he has a PhD in experimental physics, and he works in ultrasound. And for a decade now, we've been collaborating on trying to improve ultrasound signals. There's two parts to ultrasound. There's the actual building the ultrasound machine, which I consider an engineering problem. And then there's taking the signal and trying to get some information out of that, and that's the mathematical problem. So how can mathematics help interpret an ultrasound signal? So all signals have noise, and you're trying to come up with some way of processing the signal so that you can pick up the true signal and ignore the noise. Mike had a really big idea about a decade ago. The traditional way of processing ultrasound signals, you send a sound wave into some tissue sample, and then it bounces back at different layers and when it comes back, you measure the strength of the reflected signal. And since you know the, the speed of sound, you know roughly how deep it went. And then you try and build up a map that way. The traditional way of looking at it is you just look at the energy of the reflected signal. And so his big idea was that signals don't just carry energy. Waves also carry information. And there's a way of measuring this mathematically using something called entropy. And he thought that if you could look at the entropy of the reflected signal, maybe you could get sharper images. There are various ways you can measure this entropy, some of which are more sensitive, some of which are more resistant to noise, 
And so we have been working for a decade on improving the picture quality you can get by looking at the entropy of the reflected signal instead of the energy. We have a lot of results. In fact, on my webpage, you can see a video of a rabbit's liver. And you can pick up tumors which are invisible to the standard technique. Then we realized just very recently that even though ultrasound was what this was developed for, it actually applies to all reflected signals. You can use it equally well with radar signals or reflected X-ray signals or even NMR. And you can think of it as a, an algorithm that you process the signal with and then it gives you a picture. The Department of Homeland Security is now interested in this as a way of finding hidden explosives. Just as pure mathematical proofs end up being unreasonably effective at solving problems in the real world, a solution for one applied math problem may have implications in other fields or other uses. Mathematics is incredibly and wonderfully ubiquitous that way. If you've never been particularly mathematically minded, I hope this discussion has revealed how truly accessible and fundamental math is in our daily life. Many thanks to Professor John McCarthy for talking to us. If you're interested in thinking more about math, check out our past episode, Musical Mathematics, which examines the intersection of music and math. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, you can find Hold That Thought on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Stitcher.